Congresswoman, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, this is the first time I've talked to you since you have become a member of Congress. Yep. So welcome to the Death Star in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and and thank, thanks. It's good to see you again. And the last time I saw you was right before I, I was thinking about running for Congress. Yeah. And, uh, and here we are today. So we met um, in 2014-ish, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit earlier than that. Um, because you had emerged as sort of a Ron Paul guy slash Tea Party activist slash uh, Senate candidate. Do you remember the salad days? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to this idea of constitutionally limited government and fiscal responsibility within the Republican Party? It's gone by the wayside, and I can't I can't exactly pinpoint it because it's been it's been decades in the making and what we're seeing today it's almost like we're we're fast forwarding this disaster that's on the horizon and i don't understand it this is a problem created by both sides um for the longest time for decades you know republicans wanted more defense spending and for that democrats wanted more spending on social welfare programs and and they just kept increasing it year after year after year and then neither side holding the other accountable because they were both getting what they wanted and then fast forward to this this pandemic that we're having, and it's totally out of control. And you know, government forced businesses to shut down, yet government didn't shut down. They, I mean, they stayed entirely open. They didn't they didn't cut any of their spending. They didn't do anything. They didn't make any of the tough decisions that businesses had to make to keep going. And instead, they're just going to bankrupt everybody. And some of the 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 spending packages they're talking about now, they're only getting larger, but the only way to pay for it is with going to be with one of the highest tax hikes in American history. And, you know, Democrats are often very feeling and they use these nice buzzwords like tax the rich and let corporations make them pay their fair share. But there's always going to be loopholes for the rich. There's always going to be some way to write it off or hold it in a trust that there, there are things that they can use, mechanisms, financial mechanisms, they can use to shelter, right? Everyone else is going to pay that bill. Yeah, like uh, they have lawyers and accountants that, that right. know how to play the game and, and know how to protect their income. That's how they got that way. Right. The average uh, American can't afford to do right. that. And and so that bill gets passed down on the backs of people that are making much lower wages and much lower salaries and that do live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. My sense is that we're starting, just starting to see what happens when you helicopter $6 trillion in fake money onto an economy because the, the real tax, particularly on, on people that, that hold cash, is inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's more insidious because nobody sees it. But if you're looking at, I mean, gas prices are maybe an exogenous shock kind of thing, but food prices, everything's going up right now. Uh, lumbers through the roof and that's got to be a combination of the government uh, dropping a lot of money on the economy and prohibiting a lot of people from working like so it's a it's demand and supply they believe they they printed the federal government printed four trillion dollars last year they're on track to print another four trillion this year the prices of everything is going up we saw just last week with colonial pipeline prices in my area went up about a quarter and they haven't gone back down. And I, I question whether they even will. But the cost of milk, the cost of everything is going up. And then on top of it, worse yet, we've incentivized the unemployment. The federal government's paying you to stay home by, by giving you bigger checks and, and 
and they want to, from my understanding, continue to do it. They want people to uh, to get a check monthly from the federal government. It used to be in this country, you'd come here and you wanted to earn your success. You didn't want to be given it. Like most people, that's what they want to do. And, and yet here we are, we're, we're, we're failing. And that's why those unemployment numbers the other week were so abysmal. Economists were expecting a million new jobs and it was a quarter million because of these, you know, ass backward policies that uh, that do more harm. They're not bringing people out of poverty. They're not educating them. They're not getting them back to work. Yeah. So you, you've been outspoken on this subject about these never ending, overly generous unemployment benefits that go to gig workers. They go to people regardless of whether or not they're trying to find jobs. And it's created this huge gap mm-hmm. between um people that are unemployed and yet there's this massive uh, uh, body of, of work that's actually needing to be done. South Carolina has also sort of led the charge. Your governor, I believe, was one of the first to say, we we don't want those benefits. Um, why not? Isn't that, isn't that mean? <laughs> well, there's already federal, there are already, excuse me, there are already unemployment benefits at the state level. So if you do lose your job, I believe in South Carolina, maybe it's $300 a week, depending on what uh, on what you were making beforehand. So there are already at the state level unemployment benefits. The problem with the last COVID relief package, which can't even call it that, but they did another, an additional $400 a week. And so when you look at the wages uh, of folks during COVID-19, we're paying them more to sit at home or close to what their wages or salaries were. So why would they come back to work? Is there is there any reason, is no surprise that, you know, Colonial was having a hard time finding CDL truck drivers. Many of them are at home taking unemployment until it goes away. In South Carolina, federal benefits go away June 1st. Um, the same thing with, with gig workers. Try to get a, a car and a ride from the airport to your home or if you've been drinking to go back home the prices are four five ten x what they were just even a few months ago and so we're seeing it everywhere lumber fuel i mean literally everywhere um, because of the the impact that the unemployment benefits and then the stimulus checks on top of it um, people have earned tens upon tens of thousands of dollars from the federal government and they like getting a check and not working, and we, we need them back to work. South Carolina, for example, there are 85,000 jobs available right now, and there are 116,000 people who are on unemployment. If you want a job, you can damn near have a job. They're yeah. there, they yeah. exist across all sectors, all industries, all job levels. And one of the things I am encouraging people today is if you are at home on unemployment and you're in the state of South Carolina or another state that is getting ready to lift the federal, to take away the federal unemployment benefits, Texas was the most recent state I read, but now's the time to get a job. So if you're in Atlanta, I know that Papa John's was offering $2,000 signing bonuses, or if you want to interview with McDonald's, they'll pay you $50 cash to show up. Now is the time to negotiate a better wage, a better salary, better benefits before all these other states and all these other people get off unemployment in South Carolina starting June 1st. And once that happens, you're going to be competing with everybody. So now is the time. Go get that job. Get better benefits, better pay, better salary, and provide more for your family. Go do it now. So I'm thinking that um, I'm thinking about the press release you just point out. Uh, um, demanding that Nancy Pelosi finally lift the mask mandate. And is it just the House floor? Is that what the rule is? I believe it's just the House floor right now, though I was in a hearing just a few hours ago in oversight and we were required to wear our masks. At one point, I was one of two members in the room mm-hmm. still required to wear my mask. Yeah. And I was more than six feet away from the other member. And 
imagine following science. We you know, the left, the far left uses that tagline, follow the science. Well, we are following the science. Right. And kids shouldn't be in masks. Kids aren't in schools. They're not passing COVID to one another. They're getting it from adults who bring it home. Um, there are many people already in this country who've had COVID or have chosen to get vaccinated. And, and so we're adults. We should be able to make this decision. Uh, wash your hands, people. Stay distant when you can, three feet, six feet. Don't do anything that you're uncomfortable with. Wear a mask. If you Double up if you want to, but don't force out another people that should have the freedom to choose how what they want to wear on their face or not, whether or not they want to get vaccinated. South Carolina, again, we've done a remarkable job of, of balancing health and safety with getting you know people back to work and showing people how you can actually do it. And in states that opened up early or remained largely open through COVID, we're not having the same spikes that other states that were very draconian in their implementation of, of COVID-19 health policy. I mean, they're having spikes. I'm not an epidemiologist, but one can just gather that uh, the exposure just hasn't been there. And every time they reopen, they're having, they're having challenges and troubles that states that were we're free and that we're open just are not suffering from. It strikes me that, there, and the reason I bring it up is that there's this old saying in politics, never let a crisis go to waste. And we've, we've gotten so far at the tail end of this pandemic that it, it seems like theater. It seems, it almost seems like uh, um, the president who is fully vaccinated wearing a mask next to other people that are fully vaccinated wearing a mask it seems like outside, they just, yeah, outside, <laughs> not near anybody else, yeah. um, alone in their cars. I see that in D.C. It sort of breaks my heart and makes me laugh at the same time. But it's it seems like at this point, they just want the crisis and the fear to keep going on so that we can pass, what, how much is the infrastructure bill they want to pass? It's 2.5 and counting. Yeah. They keep renaming it because they can't sell it to the American people. So it's getting, it was the infrastructure package, now it's like the American jobs plan now it's the american family workers plan i mean it's getting getting renamed but it's uh it's a blank check to do whatever mm. they want and that's wrong we don't have the money we just don't have the money to spend it does not exist yeah i i remember a day when the idea of having i don't even know what our deficit is anymore but it's a trillion plus it's, i think close to three and nobody even knows what that means because it's so big mm -hmm. and i remember the idea of, of just passing these huge multi-trillion dollar omnibus bills would have been sort of antithetical to um even even democrats would have never gotten behind something like that but the crisis right the fear the fear and the demagoguery and um they're so far the biden administration seems to be running the table on this stuff but it doesn't last forever but i think that's why uh, Nancy Pelosi still wants you to wear a mask because the right. symbol matters, even though it's anti-science at this point. Um, it's anti-freedom. It's it's sort of anti-common sense. It's anti-what mom told you. Right. But let's do it. It's control and it's power. And it's it's scary. It's really scary where we are right now and the amount of fear we've instilled in people, um, even just transitioning out of all of a sudden now, masks are okay, okay to take off. Now, all of a sudden, I don't know what science has changed. Science hasn't changed in the last few days, but I'm glad to see the CDC say, hey, if you're vaccinated, don't wear a mask inside or out. And even when you talk to different healthcare officials within the federal and state government, a lot of them will give you conflicting mask advice. They work, they don't work, only only work for 24 hours if it's a certain kind of mask. I mean, it's all conflicting and sows distrust. And it is an example of an erosion of our freedoms and getting up here 
I mean, I had come from state politics and knowing somewhat what I was walking into in Congress, but to witness, to have literally a front row seat to the dismantling of our Constitution, of our freedom, seeing it taken away, redistribution of power and money in this country, um, it, it's very scary where we are today. And then the divisions. I mean, in order to get reelected, you got to say the craziest things, and it's on both sides. you got to scare people the most as opposed to empowering the people. So let's, uh, let's take a step back uh, for people that don't know you. You're a first-termer. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, uh, your, you have some cool aspects of your story and I want to go back to the Citadel, but when did you become what I would call a Liberty Republican sort of in the, um, Ron Paul, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, Mike Lee kind of zone? When Ron Paul ran for president in 12, it really, um, I was on, I volunteered, uh, and I saw him speak would watch his debates and really, sort of dove into this di- this idea of freedom and what does that mean and how how is it being stripped away? How is it being taken away? How is the government, in some cases, very manipulative and, and how does policy affect everybody? And it was very inspiring to sort of be a part of that movement as well and and, and support the, the underdog. And when you look at where we are today, his message was was spot on, particularly looking at this economic cliff that we are teetering on right now. <clears throat> he was very prescient in what the future would hold if we allowed government to have more power. Um, and, um, and it was a learning experience. And politically, I never thought, I never, ever, ever thought I'd be a member of Congress. I mean, I dropped out of high school and was waiting tables at a Waffle House at the age of 17. And to see the opportunity and the second chances I've had um, and to hear that message with a lot of Liberty folks too. And they, they're, they care about the same issues that I think most people in this country care about. They don't want the government in their bedroom or their boardroom. They want to be given the freedom to achieve the greatest success that they, that they can. They don't want barriers to get in the way. And that's a dream that every American should have, no matter your political affiliation or where you come from, walk of life, color of your skin, gender, your zip code, or where your family's from, like that is what everybody wants. That's why we are the greatest country in the world is because of the freedom we have here. So one of the one of the cool aspects, and maybe counterintuitive until you understand it, aspects of the Ron Paul movement was how much support he got from military and veterans. As mm-hmm. um, particularly in twelve, you know, one of his marquee issues was always we're in too many wars. We don't have a purpose, um, and. To me, that makes perfect sense. Was that did that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. And then you see how how spread thin we are around the world, and that we have difficulty sometimes winning the these wars. And we've been in Afghanistan for over two decades, and now we have we have soldiers, men and women, serving in uniform over there right now. They weren't even born when nine eleven happened, and it really makes you think uh, about why why we do what we do, why we are we where why we are where we are today. But also there was always their strength and peace and defending the homeland and training back here. Um, we could do a lot more here back at home and put that back into the economy, having our service members, more of them here versus overseas and and really questioning what we're doing over there. And looking at the elections we get involved in overseas and we scream when other countries try to do it to us yet we're doing it all over the world too and so it's just um he really i think opened a door and opened you know educated people on what was really going on and not many people were paying attention but the ron paul movement it was such a great 
movement. It was inspiring. It inspired many people to run for office or at least carry some of those those issues and those values uh, forward for yeah. that movement. You um, you mentioned the the trade off between defense spending and domestic mm-hmm. spending and and that Achilles heel amongst sort of the neoconservative Republicans. I've argued is is sort of the the thing that broke the back of the Tea Party movement because we wanted to balance the budget, mm-hmm. we wanted to eliminate the debt, we wanted to reduce the size and scope of government, and you couldn't do that stuff as long as you were always defending fully funding the military because that um, that sounds good and yes we should absolutely fund the things that that are essential so that um, we don't put our men and women in service in harm's way, but it's also a blank check. And that was the thing. You remember the, the back and forth between uh, the Tea Party Republicans and, and um, the Republicans that absolutely needed more war. And I don't know how you can be fiscally responsible without putting everything on the table. No, that's right. And I come from a family of veterans. I have family. I have a, a family member getting commissioned this weekend. Almost everybody in my family serves. And I mean, they, by and large, also agree with me. Um, they don't want to see us fighting wars all over the world for their entirety. I have family members who've been deployed a half dozen times over the last 15 years. The toll that it takes on, on these young men and women who are sacrificing everything and their families are as well. And, you know, when we look at the money that, that's spent overseas, and then even now, I mean, I looked at some of the, the training issues we have in our Air Force with some of our pilots and having deaths in training. And wouldn't it be better if we're going to if we're going to spend that, but invest it here at home, invest it in the men and women that we're sending overseas and send them to fewer places. And when we do go, we, we have a mission and we have a plan to get in, get out, end it and come home. And that's largely missing. You don't see that often anymore. And some of these wars have been going on for so long, people often forget about it. It's not top of mind. It's not front of mind because we don't hear about it in the news every single day. Yeah. Um, how, did you, um, how did you go from Army brat to high school dropout to first woman to graduate the Citadel? How does that happen? I, I had this conversation with, with my staff yesterday um, trying to explain to them why I sometimes do what I, I went a little rogue this weekend. Um, but it was meaningful work and it was important work to me, but I have this thing where I, I can only do zero or a hundred, like that is my speed. And I have this gene called, I call it the fight club, mm-hmm. right. And, and fighting for the little guy. And I've been fighting against systems and trying to do right by those that have been wronged. Um, when my dad retired, he retired to South Carolina, and I went to middle school and high school in my hometown. But when I was 16, I was raped, and it changed my life forever. I knew that if I came forward, I wouldn't be given a fair shake. Given back, this was the mid-'90s, if you were a female victim, you were going to be drugged through the mud. One out of, what, maybe 100 cases or 50 cases ever get tried. Out of that, another one out of 50 or 100 might get a conviction. Knowing how difficult that was and knowing I was up against a system, I couldn't do that. And it crushed me. It literally crushed my soul. And I had no hope for the future. I I said, this is it. I'm I'm going to amount to nothing in my life. And I gave up hope on everything. And I dropped out of school. And I took a job at a Waffle House waiting tables. And I I learned some really tough lessons during some tough times. And I learned about what it would take to work hard in this world. And, and And I gave myself a second chance. And so I've 
by and large, since that moment in my life, I've been about second chances. And that was in 95. And then in 96, the Citadel decided to let women in. Ruth, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a majority opinion against VMI or the Virginia Military Institute and said if you were a government or state-funded, federally-funded uh, institution of higher learning, you couldn't discriminate based on gender. And the Citadel decided to let women in. And I didn't go there to be the first woman. I didn't go there to break a glass ceiling. I went there because I had something to prove to myself that I could go to a place that was challenging, that I could face enormous adversity, and I wouldn't quit. And that is the only reason that I went there. And that experience gave me a, a second chance. And so I've always been about these second chances and sort of you know, fighting the system and trying to, to right wrongs that have yeah. been done to others. Um, and there were women that tried before you right. and dropped out. Right. So I'm assuming the, this is not an easy thing to do. No, not an easy thing to do. And in fact, in my class, there were there were four women that started and there were two that dropped out by Thanksgiving or Christmas. And so there were two of us that finished that first year and the ratio of men to women was about 900 to one. So it was definitely a test of, of character, a test of grit, a test of what I could and could not take. And that, and I did it. And I ended up, um, I went from high school dropout to, to graduating at the top of my class. I gave up all the alcohol and drugs I was doing and focused on me and my work in school and ended up graduating at the top of my class with almost a 4.0. I never thought that I'd ever be able to I'd ever be able to do that. And it was life-changing. So was there a Vigo Mortensen, if you get the reference, um, from G.I. Jane screaming at you the whole way trying to undercut your your progress? I had, I had a couple of those, <laughs> more than one. Yeah. But I also had really good people around me that uh, would that I could talk to, and mm -hmm. I developed some enormous just lifelong friendships and um, you know for the folks that I'm friends with that are from there now I mean I wouldn't be where I am today without that community in the Citadel now we're 22 years after I've graduated and uh, it's a totally different experience now and they support women that are there when I was there being the first when you're first at anything yeah. when you're breaking breaking what was back then doesn't seem controversial now but it was a really controversial thing um, but I also learned there when I was there that women are tougher on other women. And so it wasn't the, the, the male cadets necessarily or the male alumni. It was the wives and the girlfriends that I really feared the most on what they were capable of doing. It wasn't the guys necessarily. And then when I went to corporate, when my first job uh, was I had a female boss and she was tougher on us than, than the men. And so I, I learned some really interesting you know, lessons about, about life in that experience as well. Yeah. The... Um... I see now where you got the gumption to run as I forget how older you were, but you were, you were in your thirties running against uh, uh, forever incumbent Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. I assume you guys get along now, we but, smooth things over. <laughs> um, but, but he was, uh, you know, incumbent forever. And you, you took him on um, in the Senate campaign at the height of the tea party movement. Mm -hmm. um, who does that? That, that seems a little crazy. It is crazy. When I look back on it too, because I, I was like, 35 or so ish or close to that and had two young kids but I was so passionate about what I believed in and I've always been told no you can't do this you can't do that and I've always had that attitude well let watch me let me show you how the worst thing anybody could ever do to me is is say no yeah. because I want to prove them wrong and, and, you, and you, here we are today yeah. <laughs> and you you came back in a couple of years and ran for the state house mm -hmm. is that right yeah, ran for the state house. I had a special election in 2017 and served three years there before I came to Congress. 
was it was it something like you 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 ran that first race and you you had sort of decided um personally like i'm not i'm not giving up just because i lost that one no i actually said the opposite i said i'm never doing that again yeah i mean i, I raised over seven hundred thousand dollars it took so much work and i said i am just not I'm not doing it that, that ever again. But then when the special election came around in South Carolina, special election, elections are eight to 10 weeks. So then I was like, well, I can do anything for eight to 10 weeks. If I really, really want to do this, if I try it at the state level, one, if I enjoy it, and two, if I'm able to accomplish anything, then then maybe maybe we would do this. And uh, and I had three elections to get in and then had a re-election and uh, had four races in the span of 10 months. And worked really really hard because so many times when people get elected they just forget why they're there they get intoxicated with power and it's almost like when you see individuals who are elected for the first time and you see them on the floor or in hearings it's it's just you can just see it like this wave of power intoxication of power is taken over and they lose sight of why 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 they're there and i didn't want to lose sight of that and i wanted to make sure that i one did exactly what I said I was going to do. Is that even possible, right? Because I had lost so much hope in, in politics and politicians and just seeing people run for office and make a name for themselves and then do exact the exact opposite of what they said they were going to do. One of the things that I admired about Ron Paul was that he was consistent. Consistent throughout the, the years, the decades, always in his positions. And mo most oftentimes, I, consistency is lost on many, many folks. They get into the job and they just completely change on who they are, their value set, or their system. And I said, we got to do this differently. And that was my mission. So you, you mentioned second chances, and mm -hmm. um, there is a pattern in your <clears throat> short legislative career yeah. of, of focusing on criminal justice reform, uh, particularly focused on the way that it sort of gobbles up young people and, and puts them into this vicious cycle of recidivism. And there's no... There's no opportunity to get your life back. There's no redemption. You just become um, caged with hardened criminals, and and we we get these absurd results we have in the American criminal justice system, where we're, you know, we're we're one of the top places in the world for for putting people in jail. It just seems insane. Right, and and because of my experiences with the second chances, I never thought I'd be in the place where, where hey, civil rights, criminal justice reform, prison reform, that those are my issues, but. I've just I've fallen into that. The one bill I had signed into law as a state lawmaker was a prison reform bill that I modeled. I, I read about the First Step Act that President Trump signed into law in December of 2018. I started digging around and seeing what was done at the state level in South Carolina and and learned a lot about the state uh, detention facilities and state prison system and was just sort of flabbergasted at some of the findings that I had. And, and we did this bill. And and uh, we were in the majority. I was Republican. It wasn't something that I had to reach across the aisle and do, but but I did that anyway. And we came out with this really great bill that banned the shackling of female inmates when they were in labor and delivery. This medieval policy that was still going on until about two years ago shocked the hell out of me and everybody else. Yeah, that's insane. And and we got rid of it. Yeah. And and uh, we did it in a way that was. 100% bipartisan, not a single person when that thing voted out, was voted out of the chamber and went to the governor's desk to be signed into law, no one voted against it. Every single person voted for it. And it gave me a lot of hope. I've seen, I grew up in a small town, South Carolina, where the difference between rich and poor is literally black and white. And 
and we have not done made the right decisions or done the right job to help give people the tools whether that's education family uh, give folks the opportunity to pull themselves out of, out of poverty oftentimes a government policy keeps them in poverty keeps them uneducated and and this was just one small way that i could make a big difference in somebody's life somebody who who may need a second chance and one of the things we did with that bill too is we allowed children to vis- visit their moms in the state penitentiary once a week if you want to give someone incentive to make good decisions to be to be a good inmate and to get out early the best thing you can do is allow their children to come visit them and give them hope and give them a reason to get out and and so that's inspiring for me but also the area where I where I grew up this is the home of Walter Scott who was shot who was shot in the back and as he was running away for not paying alimony this in my congressional district it's the site of mother emmanuel or emmanuel 9 6 years ago next month uh where nine people were murdered uh, nine black uh residents were murdered by a racist white young kid out of a wholly different part of the state who came down just to murder them and then most recently jamal sutherland and i, I civil rights issues are issues that have been historically championed by republicans but um we don't do that anymore. Yeah. We don't work on these issues. And there are so many amazing programs that spend either the same amount or less than, say, prison, right, and and have a far lower, a far better uh, rate of recidivism than than the government could ever hope for. Yeah, so um, let's let's get into Jamal Sutherland a little bit because mm-hmm. it's, um, it, it, it's an aspect that I've only started to think about that we've, for whatever reason, we've turned prisons into um, a substitute for mental health uh, facilities, and and that 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 story is just just devastating to me. Where um, you know a guy with uh, uh, mental health issues was essentially tased to death trying to get him to a, a bond hearing. Is that what a it was? A bond hearing, and it's worse than that. Even this is a 31-year-old black man whose parents at the end of December uh, wanted to get him admitted, got him admitted to a mental health facility, diagnosed with uh, bipolar schizophrenia. And there was some sort of altercation in the mental health facility. It's not clear on whether he started a fight or was breaking up a fight or got into a fight. Something happened and he was arrested and sent to a local detention center and never had a criminal record before. And the the officers were going into his jail cell where he was alone. He had a spoon and a towel. He was alone by himself in a jail cell. And it's clear in the, in the video that came out a few days ago that he was in distress, didn't understand, didn't know why he was there, and was entirely confused on why they were trying to get him out of the jail cell. And they were getting him out of the jail cell. They were taking him out to take him to another room in the same facility that had Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi to do a virtual bond hearing that he had no legal requirement to attend. A a judge can issue bond without the individual being present. So instead of letting him sit in his cell alone and letting things de-escalate, the the officers who were there, there were two of them who pepper sprayed him multiple times, and then they tasered him nine times in 60 seconds, about 5,000 volts of electricity through his body, and continued you can hear him one of his last words is what is the what is the point of all of this why are we doing this and as he told the officers he couldn't breathe he went limp there was a knee on his neck a knee on his back for for several minutes and they put a face guard over his face that was bloodied and they dragged him out of the cell face down and the parents didn't even know he was in jail 
Yeah. And I, I, I just, I was devastated when I heard about this story because he's, he's not the first, this is not the first time this has ever happened in this country. And, and mental health, it's really opened my eyes to how we treat those who are mentally ill and the percentage of, of folks who are in either federal, state, or local detention centers who have severe mental, mental illness or mental health issues like Jamal did and how we, how we handle them. I mean, I just am aghast at the way he should never have been in, in jail in the first place. And uh, the way that they're treated, I mean, he was killed for no for Wi-Fi to go into a room that had Wi-Fi. And it's it's unacceptable. It's unforgivable. And we've got to hold folks accountable and we've got to be able to talk about these issues and and really do something about it. I'm looking forward to seeing what Senator Tim Scott does in the Senate and I'm told there, there may be some mental health uh, legislation as part of that. I'm going to look and see what I can do on the House side. I never thought that prison reform and criminal justice reform would be something of significance that I would work on. But it just, it just keeps coming to me. And it's something I'm going to continue to work on. And it is a huge priority for me now. And I keep seeing this over and over and over again. And it's got to stop. And yeah. Republicans have to lead on this issue. Yeah. We can't be silent. Yeah, like the, and, and you of course know the, the partisan narrative where, um, the, the you know Black Lives Matter emphasize police brutality, and I think quite often in a very justified way, and um, um, some conservatives are constantly um, defending the police no matter what. And it strikes me that that one dynamic I see again and again and again um, when you see somebody dying in police custody or or this kind of scenario is like, um, are they are they not trained in de-escalation? It seems like they're always ramping up, and and it seems like that's a that's a institutional problem, right? Um, that they thought that what they were doing to <clears throat> Jamal Sutherland was um, standard procedure. They thought it was appropriate and that it wasn't excessive use of force. Yeah, which to me is shocking, but. Um, this week I've started to, I met with, uh, talk with the family last night and I'm starting to meet with different groups who've worked on these issues. I'm going to work with, uh, law enforcement agencies, but also Republican and Democrat groups that, <clears throat> that are very knowledgeable about what statutes say and our laws say and what policies are dictating around the country to, to do better. I mean, we cannot continue down this path. But at the same time, if law enforcement doesn't take decisive action, as was the case in Jamal Sutherland's case, uh, not taking decisive action to put these officers on administrative leave indefinitely until the investigation concluded or was resolved, puts more of our men and women in uniform who are on the street, the good actors, the vast majority who are, puts their lives at risk. And the two are not mutually exclusive. The extremism of both sides neither side is 100% right. And what we can't do is is escalate the rhetoric and put law enforcement lives on the line when really we need more, we need them to be better trained, better equipped. Um, de-escalation is an issue I'm, I'm trying to figure out and learn about now. What are we doing at the federal level? How are these patients handled? Um, how are law enforcement trained? I can't affect state or local laws, but I can do absolutely whatever I can at the federal level to figure out what do we do? How are they treated? What percentage of, I don't even know, our, our information is <clears throat> so all over the place. I don't even know that I'll get uh, enough data on how, what percentage of our, in our federal penitentiary system 
are folks who are mentally ill. I don't even know that that data even exists right now because yeah. it's not something that we've put any really time or attention or effort into looking at. Um, oftentimes, you know, mentally ill patients, it's just not as sexy as Black Lives Matter. But here we are at a young black man who was also mentally ill. And it's a serious, serious problem. Yeah. Okay, let's let's switch gears because uh, there's a couple of other issues I want to get to, but I do I do agree with you that there's this sort of transpartisan um, liberty Republicans and and progressive Democrats where they can find lots of common ground lots on common criminal ground. justice reform in a way that I would consider very constitutionally conservative, um, uh, free market libertarian or whatever that whatever brand you want to give it. Um, now here's sort of, I'll put on my tinfoil hat. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, I think you're on the Committee of Jurisdiction, but the post office has a surveillance program called ICOP. What the hell? Yeah, what the hell, seriously. And I, we had a briefing with the Chief Inspector or Chief Security Inspector General a couple of weeks ago, and unfortunately it was closed door hearing. And I really wish it was in the public because he would say one thing in one sentence and then say the complete opposite in the same breath. And I called him out on it. Uh, There are plenty of other federal agencies that are looking online, I'm sure, by warrantless. I mean, there's an alphabet soup doing it, but like they, they can barely deliver the mail on time. And now you want a surveillance program on American citizens? Like, I mean, and I even have questions on what are they reading the mail? Also, they're looking at what kind of mail that people are getting. And and when you look at it at the outset, it looks like they were targeting conservatives. I mean, the right to free speech is everybody's right. That is the First Amendment. Um, but then to, you know, one of the things that he said to me when we were in this briefing was that, well, it's not really a program. But then at the same time says, well, there's an executive over the program and they've got eight employees that do this for their job. And they couldn't identify uh, how much money was being spent on it. They couldn't identify when the program started. I, we were given two different reasons why it was started. We were saying, well, the the, the post inspector general, uh, Lois DeJoy, well, his, he had threats on him. And then there were threats in Minnesota for a physical post office. Um, it's not the same. It, the, right. you know, and so the obfuscation or dishonesty or just not answering the question, it's the same thing. Um, is 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 a huge disservice, and I want that hearing public. The public has a right to know what they're actually doing, how much time, how much money, where's that data going, how long is it, is it going to be there, and who's looking at it. So I've actually worked on this issue, but I've always been a little confused um, because the post office is uh, is like an independent agency within the executive branch. It supposedly is a profit-seeking organization, but it's not. Um, is this like a mission creep thing where they just they need a reason to exist since their original mission really doesn't they don't they don't need to deliver the mail anymore the market's actually taking care of that yeah I think the every agency the federal government uh, is a mission creep right now and it's been that way for decades yeah. just keeps growing bigger and bigger uh, literally with no end in sight okay the gotcha question okay Waffle house or in and out oh Waffle house See, you're partisan. Yeah, I mean, like, I am partisan. It's the best uh, coffee a buck eighty can buy. I mean, it is. It's so so good, and you can see everybody from every walk of life, every socioeconomic, like everybody 
is at the Waffle House. We need one in D.C. actually. I understand that one does not exist here. It does not exist here. <laughs> um, there's not an in and out either, so this is yeah. sort of a barren culinary wasteland. Yeah, and I, I've even had Christmas dinner. We had one time when my son was, was two and I was pregnant with my second kid, and we were had supposed to be on vacation, but just we were having we were struggling with a toddler and being pregnant and ended up being on the road on Christmas Day and it was the only place open on the interstate. Yeah. So I'm I'm a big fan. Christmas Day at the Waffle House. Yeah, it's great. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.